Okay, roaring back again, the live edition of What's Left in Albany. Welcome to What's Left in Albany. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding Tri-City area and region. Featuring discussions with leaders of communities or organizations to discuss themselves, local issues, and their projects in an effort to get the full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, promoting the build-out of a solidarity economy and delegative democracy, waging my one-man clandestine insurgency against confusion in our post-liberal status quo, as we cannot hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for the city, we are going to find whatever's left. And with me in the studio, one of our hopefully new producers here at WCAA. Hi. Excuse me, I'm Victoria Whitaker, and I am going to be uh, producing a show for WCAA called Victoria's World of Metal. Now, I may be new to you all, Albany, but I'm actually an old hand at this. I produced this show for five years at um, WLPP in Palinville and whatever other Pacific affiliate decided to to, uh, play me. And I'm currently playing the show for WIOX in Roxbury. What a pro. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So, uh, no no fancy intro usually. I mean, that is the fancy intro, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to keep moving forward with a bunch of kind of lingering stories that I've been covering over the last few months as I've just do one show a month, like, likely, because uh, of life and the changes, but also onboarding new people like Victoria. And that's keeping me busy. So, so priorities, you know. My own, my own show, my own self-aggrandizement, secondary to making this community radio station a success. Mm-hmm. So, but first, what else should be a success in Albany? Our transportation. So, I think we're going into with that direction. That's the it's not, no general theme really, but I'm building off of previous stories, uh, previous episodes. So two months ago, we talked about the bus station, and mostly how Trailways was splitting off, so they're parking their buses like a block away. What's up with that? Well, it wasn't profitable for them. They're not leasing anymore because Greyhound itself was kind of leasing. That's something I had questions about. Thankfully, the Albany Business Review published another piece to sort of maybe shed some light on that. So it starts like this. Title, Greyhound Bus Station Sold in Downtown Albany. So it had an owner, apparently a private owner. It was never public, which is sort of what explains why it's crap. It's private. Privately run public service, or rather, the buses are all private. It's all private all the way down. And it's, you could say this is an example of how the public private sector doesn't really provide what people really need, which is safe, dependable, 
and uh, enjoyable, it's basically transportation, mass transportation, which is not only needed ecologically speaking, but even economically speaking, because car-based cities are, in fact, very expensive. Very expensive. So, no it is no, It is no fun trying to get around here with a car. No, it isn't. <laughs> Do you think another lane will solve that? <laughs> okay, that's no. right. Um, the Greybound bus station in downtown Albany has been sold to a real estate investment firm, an anticipated but significant step for local officials who want to replace the rundown station in the state capitol with a new 82 million transit center, no longer just buses. An affiliate of 20 Lake Holdings in Stamford, Connecticut, bought the property at 34 Hamilton for $590,000 from previous owner First Group Services, Inc., which is based in Williamton, Delaware, according to a deed filed in the Albany Clerk, uh, County Clerk's Office. So they did look that up. So First Group PLC of Britain, which is a British, British public transit provider and former owner of the Greyhound Intercity Bus Service, sold 33 of its properties in December to 20 Lake Holdings for about $140 million. Although the deal between First Group and 20 Lake was announced last fall, the filing of the deed was at the beginning of this year, on January 10th. For us, it's a fresh start with a new owner who, I think, <laughs> with the poorly written, well, I, it's someone talking. <laughs> I think with the I think with the plans out there, knows how important that site is to the city. This is Matt Peter, Executive Director of the Park, Parking Authority. Parking Authority partnered with the Capital District Transportation Authority, CTA, bus. So this is the bus system. Uh, they partnered on a feasibility study last year on a plan to demolish the old Must Maligned Station and replace it with a long-sought parking garage slash multimodal transit center. Of course, why would need? Well, people should be able to park there, right? Oh, we need more parking, 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 parking. But uh, also, besides being the you know inner city bus depot, it's also all a lot of the routes for our local bus system start there as well. The rapid transit routes, so on. Now, well, wow, no funding has been committed. There's mm-hmm. strong support from local, state, and federal officials to finally replace the building. So they haven't put together funding yet. So the new transit center would be paid for. Uh, with 67, but why isn't it being bought then by public sector then? Hmm. What, so they're going to pay, so for a private equity investment firm, they're going to be basically making profit off of money that's probably going to be needed to be provided from the public. Why don't we just have a public bus depot and then we lease it out to private bus firms if needed? Well, that would make too much sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be a public solution, and you know, obviously liberals can't stand that. No. So, okay, the new transit center would be paid for with $67 million in federal, 7 in state, and another $7 million from the parking authority and CETA. There is a solid plan, Peter said. The next step is to have meaningful conversations with the new owner in the coming months. Why isn't the county the new owner? Yeah. They bought the TU Center, right? They've done this before. Yeah. As for the $590,000 sale price, Peter said, that number doesn't surprise me or scare me away because the real dollars and cents will be in the rehab and site prep. CTA has been talking about the need for a downtown transit center for at least a decade, but usually to no avail. Because you talk, you talk, and talk, and but you actually need money. 
So, um, any comments? Well, Have you ever? Well, you, it sounded like you never used the bus station before, right? <laughs> it, All I've ever done is pick up folks there. But yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Something needs to change, but yeah. But of course, always, you know, why do something public when somebody could make be making money on it somewhere? <laughs> the um, it is as dreary, dreary inside as outside, especially yeah. in the last few years. COVID, but even besides COVID. There was, you know, there should be a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And there's no been, the food has never been served, to my knowledge. Yeah. There's space for store. There's spaces for mm-hmm. other things. And it's, and it's just a really dreary place with benches and, and there's not a lot of seating. There could be more of that. Yeah. And I mean, the, the Amtrak station in Rensselaer, mm-hmm. that's been rebuilt over the last few years. And I mean, I, I've taken trains, you know, out of, out of the area. And I mean, it's great. You know, there's, yes. there's shops there and it's comfortable. It's clean. Why can't the bus station be like that? <laughs> that would definitely be the goal. Yeah. And is is the train station owned by Amtrak or is it owned by a private owner and the Amtrak uh, is leasing it? That I could I guess that's say. a question we don't know. <laughs> no. So we'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Um, what is this, a research stream? Yeah. Hey, where's my Jamie? <laughs> Former city parking lot owner wants, okay, so adjacent. So the parking, the bus depot is not the most, actually the most depressing thing downtown it's the entire parking district that is around it yeah now it was slated back when i was a young in back in the in the aughts mm-hmm. um the big plan was to put the big albany convention center there big state funded project it would be como's no no not como's pataki's masterpiece yeah, yeah pataki's yeah. masterpiece and there was a lot of fighting over that because it was a big mass a bu- massive building and it was like oh this is but it's also the Johnny Come Lately story of Albany that we're always 15 years behind what every other Rust Belt city is doing, yeah. building convention centers. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is this really going to be profitable? Is this really the kind of thing we need when our cities, when our neighborhoods are derelict? And like, this is how many jobs does this really create or for people in Albany? Of course, yeah. none. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's the whole region. It's a regional economy, and that's of course a lot. You know, it's a problem. But it didn't fall through because of the recession. Maybe thankfully. Mm-hmm. So it got pared down and a third of the price for the Capitol Center, which actually does have a lot of events. I've yet to be in there, but they seem to be doing well. But not really exploding downtown business either. So there's that parking district. Uh, it's still there. And uh, there's been quite a, it's like a chronicle. No, chronicle, a, um, a long D&D campaign of, Tempting to actually get these parcels out of the hands of these, uh, whoever owns them. Sometimes they're like, but uh, sometimes just a, some old families or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, after many years and even myself designing a proposal for the site, hypothetical, of course, with, with as much architectural training I have, uh, the city capitalized Albany. Well, I'll go into it. But the former city parking lot owner wants $7.2 million for seized land. The claim was filed last month, says the city city of the Albany's IDA. That's Industrial Development mm-hmm. uh, Agency. IDA. Offer, lovely, lovely IDA. <laughs> yeah. Many complaints. I think I, I need to bring people in to talk about their experiences with that and whatnot. The former owner of land in downtown Albany has filed a claim in the state Supreme Court demanding an economic arm of the city, P. 
pay $7.2 million for the land that was seized through eminent domain last October. You know, because after a decade of asking and probing and trying to get this land into public hands so it can be developed, because otherwise you have these private owners who just do not want to develop it. Apparently they're making enough money uh, as parking lots because, I mean, that's the true tragedy of car-based cities is that you have parking lots, even parking spaces, mm -hmm. that are making more than a minimum wage worker would. Yeah. Not only in profit, but just like the gross money it makes. Or that the land makes more money as a parking lot than it would be for housing or something people actually want or need or should have. Yeah. Or park. So this is not even a full acre, but 0.88 acres was seized on behalf of Capitalize Albany, pseudo-private public arm of the city, to further its efforts to make way for future development in what they're calling Liberty Park. It is a little piece of green space that is Liberty Park, but they're calling the whole thing Liberty Park now. Uh, the rebranded name that is more commonly known as the parking lot district sandwiched between Broadway and South Pearl. I call it the parking crater. Yeah. Because I think that's what strong towns called it or something. Uh, the city's industrial development agency and Capitalize Albany have spent years trying to gain control of the parcels in the area, which Capitalize Albany described in its application to the IDA for assistance as, quote, an area that is considered the largest area of blight in downtown Albany. At least, you know, block the block. And the remaining properties in the parking lot district were owned by descendants of a Paul and David Chambers, brothers who had their own court dispute back in the 90s. So in 2019, Capitalize Albany spent one, one chunk of $3 million to purchase one group of the parcels, which totaled up to half an acre. Imagine, $3 million for half an acre? Ugh. What is this? Um, a small town in, um, the, in, in SoCal? The IDA offered the remaining property owner. So the IDA then offered the remaining property owner. So there was a holdout. 2.65 million last year. The owner, PSC LLC, accepted the offer, but reserved the right to seek additional compensation according to court documents. In the claim filed last month, this company said it had the 11 parcels of land along Broadway, Dallas, Hamilton, Green, Division, and Liberty Streets appraised, and the IDA's offer was woefully short in its eyes. My guy says it's worth twice that. <laughs> Quoting, The IDA has failed to make any offer of compensation that is even remotely equal to the value of condemned properties, the owner's attorneys wrote. <laughs> Both sides will submit their appraisals of the land to the court to eventually decide what the ultimate compensation amount will be. The land has been leased as paid parking lots to what is now Liberty Square Development, an LLC, an extension of leases once held by the Albany Convention Center Authority. So I think what happened was they, the, the Convention Center Authority spent all the money collecting the land but then some of it reverted back or some, I, I was trying to follow it a decade ago and I couldn't and it pissed me off. Liberty Square has filed a complaint of its own. So, so, so there's this Liberty Square company. Let's review what the land has been leased as parking lots. Okay. So the owners are leasing the use of the land to Liberty Square development, which is the you know what the convention center authority turned into 
which 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 was always, I believe, a county entity with county people on the board who are collecting salaries for being on this board, and year in year out not doing anything, or meeting once a year, and they were getting like twenty grand. I was outraged. Liberty Square has filed a complaint of its own, asking the co- this company, PC, PSC, to return, uh, which stands for piece of shite uh, company, <laughs> to return uh, 16370 in lease payments for part of October 2022 and all of November, and it paid several days after the IDA filed a notice of acquisition. Every get, get, get every last penny. Mm-hmm. The ruling last October cleared the way for the city and capitalized Albany to begin redeveloping the larger area which includes dilapidated zone of parking lots, crumbling buildings, and the former Adirondack Trailways bus station. That's the the building that's on Broadway that has like this kind of oh it's it's a it's like it's like one it's a one story building that's just kind of just been raised up. And I really like it. It would really, it would make a nice little community you know spot or what have you. But uh, it's it's like just there. It's it's a nice little piece of modern catch. <laughs> The land, part of which was used in the early 20th century as the Albany Center Market, sits between broad, says it was cleared. It was never fully developed, at least at the time. There are pictures with it filled with carts and things. Sits between Broadway, Hudson Street, and the South Mall Artery. It was once eyed as a site for a convention center, which was later built on Eagle. The state, through Empire State Development, later committed $15 million to help the IDA and capitalize Albany purchase and redevelop the site which is enough to, I guess, buy the land and then have, like, get 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 a consultancy mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, pitch something that's way uglier than what I would pitch. Yeah. The concept plan Cavalier's Albany prepared for the area in spring 2020 envisions a mixed-use construction project that would include residential, commercial, office, and rent retail that includes roughly 300 apartments, a 100-room hotel, and a 550-space parking garage, mm-hmm. of course, even though the bus station is still right there. <laughs> in his application to the IDA for financial assistance in the eminent domain process, Capitalize Albany laid out the scope of the site's problems and possibilities. Currently, the dilapidated state of the site and its transient parking use produce little in the way of a functioning neighborhood, the agency wrote. The city's parking authority is also seeking to build an 81 million transit station, which I just covered, so it all pieces together, and... That's, you know, they're saying sensible things, but not going too far to say more. This was written by Steve Hughes. One YouTube uh, channel I like is, um, or in the last year, is a guy, City Nerd. And he's got a city planning degree, and he lives, get this, he lives in Las Vegas, carless. So you think I'm crazy for being carless? This guy's carless in Las Vegas. And he seems to make a good hay of it. Mm -hmm. And he points out, he did a video... Uh, about like you know, cities who do street closures, you know, at least close streets to car traffic for a day or so. And he actually pointed out, because it was a general question about the strip, mm-hmm. could the strip ever be closed to car traffic or parts of it? And, he, and it has actually been happening. And they've been doing that. And uh, it's been great. And it's like, yeah, this is actual public space because there are, interestingly, once people are in Vegas, and this is not the case, obviously, when Vegas was being originally developed as a car stop. But now, as an international destination, once people get there, they are walking. They're not renting a car that much. Or they rent a car to go from the airport to their hotel. But that's where it gets stupid, where there's basically, when people are going to the Strip, they're getting there one of two ways. They're going from the airport to the Strip, 
or they were going from the L.A. area to Las Vegas. They're both straight lines. What can go on a straight line, Victoria? A train or a bus. There you go. <laughs> so he points that out and how um, how easily Las Vegas, as an international tourist destination, and you have certain cross um, crossing sections in Las Vegas where there's so many people crossing, it is actually disrupting the car traffic yeah. because it's like they, they're going against the light because there's just so many people and they, they're not going to – the power of numbers allows them to keep going because <laughs> there's so many stack up between lines. In short, why are they bothering with cars in the first place? <laughs> and what kind of uh, what kind of freaks are driving down the strip nowadays? You know, even though the strip is designed to be viewed from a car, which is kind of odd, but maybe like that's what a tram would be for. You just have trams going up and down the strip, and yeah. otherwise, people are driving through the strip to get to the downtown area. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's what trams could do. Okay, but. We're also going to look at, in the previous um, edition of the show, I covered a Strong Towns article about Airbnb and other short-term uses and how you have you can have total blocks where no one lives there, but they're zoned, and and, and, and on paper, they're residential, um, but they're being used basically as like little hotels. And uh, an Albany isn't um, totally, um, we're not free of that. And in fact, there are some, uh, the, the friction that would result from from uh, micro micro rentals, or there's a formal term for it, but let's just say Airbnbs. Albany looking at regulations that would impact Airbnb verbo rentals. By the way, when I'm watching YouTube on my phone, which I can't run an ad blocker on, tons of verbo ads. Yeah. Annoying as hell. Because it's like, it's showing like when you're a verbo home, it's just you. Yeah. Right. I'm like, well, I guess you know, mo- mo- most normie vacations are about getting away from people. Yeah. Even though most of the lies, if they're normie enough, they're suburbans, they're not around people enough. Yeah. But people are just obstacles, always, because of, you know, car-based design. So a half a dozen residents of Irving Street, here uh, in Center Square, spoke before the city uh, city council last week, urging either a ban on short-term rentals or a restriction that would regulate things like their trash output. Because apparently, when you have... What's the usual thing about tourists not caring about where they're visiting? Yeah. Uh, we're getting some of that. So a group of Hudson Park area residents are pushing the city to regulate short-term rentals, and they contracted uh, that are contracted through Airbnb, Verbo, and other companies after dealing with a problem property for months. Now that's a general term, problem property, that comes up in most TU reporting, referring to some home, whether it be a homeowner, renter, just a a house that others are complaining about. There's some social ill occurring. Yeah. Uh, whether you know, It could be all kinds of things, all kinds of different ways of complaining. Sometimes it's really silly. Sometimes it's like they're just throwing parties all the time. It's loud. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, why can't they just buy a club? You know, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> There's some, definitely warehouses around here for cheap that they could just be holding parties at. And sometimes they do. Yeah. Quote, these rentals are commercial enterprises in a residential neighborhood, said Irving Street resident Nancy Goody. (laughs) They undermine the stability of our neighborhood. So do um, people on motorcycles and dirt bike riders. There are legitimate complaints, and and, and this counts to me. 
In the last several years, at least two properties – well, again, there's a class divide. You have the person profiting off of creating a social problem, and people on dirt bikes are the poor, basically kind of getting their kicks as they can because public streets are for everyone, and mm-hmm. you have people who don't like that. Um, but again, we could have private, quote-unquote, you know, semi-private streets where they're closed to traffic or local traffic or car traffic. Now, of course, I guess people on dirt bikes could still get through, right? Yeah. And there was this thing in Chicago back in the 90s, I think it was. It was a, a terrible scheme to stop drive-bys from happening. They basically put up blocks to stop through traffic on on in, 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 in the South End grid. And this became a disaster because it did prevent emergency vehicles from getting around easily. And a bunch of other, it created other social problems instead. Yeah, someone and it, didn't think that through. And it doesn't well, actually stop drive-by shootings, yeah. or rather, the drive-by is, you know, it, it, it's the fact that there's gangs and, and, and an illicit drug trade, and it's a bigger problem than just how fast someone can drive down a street. But otherwise, you could just do other traffic calming stuff. But again, this was before traffic calming even was in the lexicon mm-hmm. of planets. So in the last several years, at least two properties on Irving Street have been operating as short-term rentals. So meaning it's not someone living there doing their uh, doing um, Airbnb some weekends or on the weekends. No, it, the whole property is just short-term rental, um, night by night. Others have popped up in the surrounding blocks because the center square is, in fact, the densest neighborhood in the region. It is, in fact, a nice place to be. Jenna Patera, who lives down the block on Irving, said she went on a scavenger hunt to find the property owners to see if they could find fix the situation. Property is owned by an LLC, which in turn comes back to another LLC. <laughs> so it's a nesting doll. The only contact Patera could was able to make was with a professional Airbnb host who manages several properties in the city. So, so, so you have outside companies who are outsourcing the management you know, the person actually caretaking. It's a business, folks. Our homes. It's a business. So there's no way to talk to them, she said. This is why we need regulation. Our neighborhood should be aware of any commercial enterprise opening on our street. If they tried to open a bagel shop on our street, we'd hear about it. We'd be able to talk about it. There would be a regulation of that business. Not to mention there would be someone you could talk to and complain to if there is an issue. Particularly. But the whole point of the LLC is so you don't have to deal with actual consequences of people, social consequences. The city does not have any regulations around short-term rentals. It's always playing catch-up with what the market's doing. And that's that's the innovation, in fact, that is spoken of uh, by backers of the, of the free market to say it's, it's so innovative in, in exploiting people, in creating social issues, right. problems. And, and of course, government is always like 10 years behind. I was reading about this. I'm like, well, why? You know, why? Like when it comes to the internet, telecoms, you know, it's always like the legislation had to be studied and, and talked about. And I guess that's why, because you actually look at an issue mm-hmm. and a social problem. Yeah. Well, one proposal that I have heard in terms of uh, regulating things like Airbnbs and what have you is to specifically outlaw that sort of thing in which 
the owner is not present. Because, I mean, they started out with a perfectly good idea of essentially sharing space with a, with a tourist passing through to help you pay yeah. your rent. And, and it's just, you know, metastasized into something horrific. Yeah. It's like renting a room, which, here's a radical position, the only ethical renting that exists is yeah. by room. Mm-hmm. Anything bigger, and it should be owned or communally owned. The city does okay. Doesn't have any regulations, said Rick LaJoy, who's the head of buildings and codes. So Rick LaJoy, there's a name to remember. LaJoy said the codes department dealt with two issues at the Irving Street property, including a lack of a residential occupancy permit, but that was resolved. Councilman Sergio Adams, who represents the area, as well as the rest of um, going Delaware Ave., said he was working on legislation that would provide regulations that would help city departments deal with problematic short-term rentals. It always takes him a year, because it's not a full-time job, but it should be. Anyway, the city is trying to determine a definition of home sharing that would allow it to categorize how people can use their properties for short-term rentals. Surely this has been this work has been done by someone else by now. I, there's either because of our charter, which is 300 years old, 400, we have to reinvent the wheel for ourselves. We can never borrow anything from anyone else. <laughs> or, or or it's just like a kind of, well, no, no, that's always the case, but it feels that way. The legislation, which has not been introduced, so we're not even at that stage, but this, we're at the you know introduction of the problem. Uh, this would require homeowners to register their properties as short-term rentals and pay a fee. So we're not talking about restricting, banning, mm-hmm. just you just got to pay your bribe. Yeah. <laughs> more or less to the city to offset the negative harm you do, which I'd rather get rid of the negative harm, mm-hmm. you know, because this is assuming there's some kind of big economic benefit, but there isn't because these LLCs, where, where are they? Who are they? Yeah. It's not a mom and pop landlord. It's not the neighbor. It's not anyone who's, who I should care about. Yeah. It's just some capitalist parasite. So, and this is, you listen to the show to hear me call some par- uh, landlords parasites. <laughs> if nothing, if for nothing else. The legislation which has not been introduced, okay. and this is still Adams talking. This way, they have some skin in the game. I, no comment. Because I, I don't want to burn branches before they exist. So communities have struggled with how to provide oversight. Oh, no, I could go back. That's very bland language. That's very bland. They would say, oh, they have skin in the game. They have to, oh, these addicts, they need skin in the game. You know, he's like, oh, these landlords, they need skin in the game. They'll pay a fee. That'll, that'll fix it. Yeah. That'll fix the abuse. Yeah, of course, the fee is probably just pocket change to these I, people. I get it. You know what? Here's a way to reduce um, uh, domestic violence. Yeah. We'll just have them pay a fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> Every time you hit your spouse, pay a fine. There you go. That solves it. Communities have struggled with how to provide oversight of short-term rentals since the introduction of apps that bring millions of rentals worldwide to people's smartphones. Last year, activist groups and elected officials announced a push to regulate short-term rentals in the overall Hudson Valley. This month, Local Law 18 went into effect in New York City, so they're about done with this process, which establishes new requirements for short-term rentals, including a registration process and what the process will look like is still being worked out. This is also by Steve Hughes. So he's he's the regular Albany guy. There was a woman at one point who I liked. 
So I'm going to have to build some kind of relationship with Steve Hughes, maybe have him as a guest. I don't know. The thing is with, with Albany, with, you know, the kind of local beat reporters at the TU is they're just, this is the way station on their way to some better job. Yeah. As, as was the case with, um, oh, what was her name? Now onto the street level. Got any comment about short-term rentals? Have you ever used them? No, I never have, and I've heard horror stories about them. Well, it's not really by my choice. Yeah. But they are a somewhat affordable option to a hotel when, mm-hmm. in the case of outings with the boys. Yeah. So we did one last year, or yeah, I guess it was early. It was it was early summer last year. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it was more like a place that would be a hotel, like not a hotel, of course, it, like a piece of property with rentable cabins on it, right? Yeah. So instead of renting the cabins via website, mm-hmm. they used Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a legitimate local business in North Korea, not just some big property owner, yeah. uh, landlord. In this case, I don't know, but basically we're doing a bachelor party in Montreal, and so we're getting, we need something that fits mm-hmm. eight guys. So, cause otherwise splitting like three different hotel rooms, very, you know, gets pricey. Yeah. So we're, we're going the Airbnb route as well. It was always the plan. I was like iffy about it. Like, well, I can't object. I'm not planning this. So I'm kind of along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And so it was pretty good last time we did it. But again, this was a cabin in, in the mountains. And this time it will be in a, you know, heavy urban neighborhood. So I'll have to think about like, because these are places that are established. They are not where people live. And that's in in these urban neighborhoods in Montreal, which are probably gentrifying the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. So, and and so there's that, you know, no ethical consumption and all that. But with, with our incomes being um, not quite up and coming millennials. Yeah. We, we gotta make do. Yeah. And, and not to mention there's how these, um, short-term rentals have been driving property values up. Right. Yeah, exactly. And again, cause they're not pe- people living in the midst. Or rather, it makes properties, certain neighborhoods more valuable. Yeah. To capitalists. Mm-hmm. But it's, again, the price is within capitalism, not based on any social utility or use utility. Use even. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess this is a type of use, but again, that's what freaking hotels are. Yeah. And, uh, and it's interesting to hear, like, you know, Capitalize Albany propose a hotel in the parking crater. It's like, do we need more hotels? <laughs> I guess so, especially if it lowers demand, you know, but if, it, if they're affordable, they have to be a mm-hmm. good rate. Economy hotel. But those are the motels that are, like, you know, halfway out of Albany, and then they're not really good for tourism or visitors because you have to drive to them. <laughs> so... um in previous episodes of the Three Left Show, uh, I've covered what is like an actual transportation plan from a city called Ghent. And this, their big plan, which uh, is made up of dividing the city into sectors and making and putting up barriers or a system of surveillance. Now, um, just yeah. to clarify, this is Ghent in the, the Netherlands. In not Belgium, the, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, not, mm-hmm. not the one here in upstate New York. <laughs> which, which which creates openings for naysayers in Albany to say, like, oh, there's zany Belgians. I'm like, what are you talking about? Again, Facebook stuff I'll share. Like, I'll do a Facebook corner eventually on this show, but not today. 
But anyway, uh, a plan of giving up a city in the sectors, using surveillance so that you cannot just drive from one to the other. If you're going to drive across the city, you're going to go to the ring road and drive around the city. And this adds more driving time, but it basically creates a penalty for driving when you're just going within an urban area. So it's encouraging, incentivizes not driving because it will actually be faster to not drive now. So you have British cities looking at doing this, and they put you know an English term to it, the 15-minute city, <laughs> which is blowing up online as right-wingers are have their hair on fire, once again, making simple urban planning a cultural issue and part of the mass globalist conspiracy yeah. to control their lives, ban cars, um, make them eat the bugs, and live in the pods. <laughs> Literally. Where the pod is their own home because it's like, I, I, you won't be able to go anywhere. Because <laughs> they can't imagine. Just, we call it car, being car-pilled. You can't imagine not driving everywhere. You can't imagine ever being disincentivized enough. Because, hell, high gas prices didn't do it. Hours of being stuck in traffic didn't disincentivize people. It's always still a matter of land use larger structural issues and planning, not so much individual choice. But it is how people choose to react to certain things. So anyway, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> no, we're going to put in speed humps because that's what Rust Belt cities do to to not just... Because again, we cannot... We, we hate the symptoms. Kids being hit by cars. Yeah. Asthma rates and general... And the budgets of filling in potholes. No, we, we, we don't like those symptoms, but we love the cause. We love driving. We love car-based cities as a, as a government, as a society. So uh, the best we can do is just slow people down in our, especially on the non-throughways that are our main streets, which are just surrogate highways at times. So to deter speeders, speed humps are coming to West Hill and South End neighborhoods. So particularly... The ghettos. Wonderful. Only the hoods. Because people are actually... It, you know? Wow. So it's almost another form of environmental racism. Yeah. Because you have the other middle neighborhoods where you still have a lot of fruit traffic, but maybe because they were planned and the roads were designed to traffic come, and people can't really speed going on Manning because mm-hmm. it's curvy. Yeah. You know? And you have... New Scotland, which also has, it's not a total straight boulevard. Mm-hmm. It, people don't, can't drive very fast on it. Yeah. There's lots of stoplights. There's lots of, like, things that slow people down. It's really hard to speed. So you have the better neighborhoods, some of which, like around New Scotland, are kind of working class. They're not totally expensive. Yeah. At least 150000 for a house is not breaking the bank. Not breaking the work, working class salary, I guess. Mm-hmm. But... Well, you have the hoods where commuters are, in fact, speeding through. Yeah. Because they look around, they don't see anyone with money, or it looks, like, terrible. And it's like, well, no one cares about this neighborhood. Why should I? Yeah. Or the people in it. And that's that, that's 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 interesting to think about. Of course, horrifying. Mm-hmm. So speeders in two Albany neighborhoods will soon get a notable nudge <laughs> about going too fast. Because that's really all we can do. Just a little nudge. <laughs> a little nudge. City officials said they're starting a speed hump pilot program because we always have to pilot things before we can actually just do it. It's not like we can go off of all the other places, uh, particularly 
The place where I've encountered speed humps the most is Ithaca. Um, they have, not their main streets, of course, but the street that parallels the main street has speed humps because it gets more residential the farther you get from downtown. And so one street, one block over, it's all residential. It's a very quick transition. Those are the streets with speed humps so that you're not trying to get around the downtown corridors by using the, the, the residential streets, right? So they put the humps there. We're doing pretty much the same thing. Police Chief Eric Hawkins and Fifth Ward Councilman Robinson and First Ward Sonia Frederick on Friday joined the mayor in announcing the pilot program kickoff. I'm excited about it. The community is excited about it. And it brings a sense of relief that something is being done to address it, says Robinson. Now, where they go, there's First Street between Ontario and Judson, Second Street between Judson and Manning, Third Street between Manning and Judson. So they're not at intersections? The whole point of the speed hump, rather than a bump, by the way, is that you're raising an entire intersection up. So instead of shocking the tire, you basically need to slow down when you're at the intersection to go over the hump. Uh, otherwise, then it will damage your axle. Um, and it's much bigger, so it's it's a more gentle nudge than a speed bump would be. And it's something that is, well, uh, also, it's you can cycle over it. A speed bump, you can't cycle over it. Uh, so, And that's something that's been learned. So there have been a lot of complaints that I've heard through the years with community members upset by the amount of speeding that occurs on those particular stretches of street. So the pilot program is a way that we can begin to slow down the traffic on those corridors, he said. Sheehan's budget set aside $250,000 in 2022 for the program backed by council members whose neighborhoods will directly benefit. Frederick's Fifth Ward area of Mount Hope Drive from the South End, Frederick expressed how the residential community has wanted this type of program for years after fears of pedestrians will be injured due to excessive speeding. But of course, it's, is it the speeding or is it that there's a lot of traffic? Well, why are there so many cars going down these little residential roads? It's not all, obviously, it's not people who live there. This is where... The zone thing goes in. And it is sort of, it requires, I think it's possible in European cities because they have way, actually way more mass surveillance. We have red light cameras and maybe some speeding cameras. We don't have the speeding cameras in Albany. But, but they have cameras pretty much on every intersection. So they can institute a whole, like, if you are not, if your license plate isn't registered to an Albany address, then you're actually, you would get a ticket if you went into a residential section of town. That's the kind of, you know, oh, it's overly, you know, controlling. But that's almost kind of what we want to do because we want to be able to let local traffic and people who live there in because otherwise you have to put, like, bollards, you know, not bollard, but the, the, the thing that comes down. You know, you need a, um, what do you call it, an access point? Yeah. Um, which is also just, no. So Robinson has also expressed the concern that community members fear for the safety of their children due to speeding. Parents don't let their kids play in front of the house. Well, actually, no. Actually, that's not how Kent did it. Um, I think that's how it's talked about in Britain because they have mass surveillance. Uh, in Belgium, they simply divided the city into parts where if you're going to go over, like there, there are these like choke points between neighborhoods for driving, and if you're going to pass over it, and you're not a bus or a bike, then you'll get a ticket. 
So it's more about controlling where the traffic is going. So emergency vehicles can always get through. So instead of blocking it like Toronto and Chicago did. No, when I say uh, Toronto, I'm referring to they put big planters on on some residential streets to to enforcing it being a one way. I think. So Frederick also stated that previously signs that said "Please slow down" and "Watch out for children" were put up in the neighborhood as a way of decreasing speed, but it was ineffective. <laughs> what, what do you know? Signs don't work. That's not going to stop me because I can't read. (laughs) Frederick also stated, oh, no. Well, that helped. It was just a temporary solution, so this will hopefully be a longer-lasting one to help reduce the speed of a very, very residential place. We're hoping it reduces speed. Well, if it is so residential, why not shrink the length, uh, the width of the street so that no one can really, like, drive, drive down it? Like, if you're going to drive, you're going to be going 10. Which, I don't know, streets like Judson kind of already are, but I guess it could be even less. Because some of those streets in the hood, sidewalks are narrow. And then, you know, someone's having a cookout, and then you have nowhere to walk. But Frederick also knows that speed humps are not the same as speed bumps. I already explained that. She hopes the program is effective in helping residential communities and pedestrians feel safer. So I don't know if that's a direct quote, but I... I don't want to hear feel. I don't want just to feel better. I want to be better. I want people to actually not get hit by cars. Fancy that. Uh, and I'm tired. And, and it's just, it's, it, it really gives the game away if they actually use that language all the time. Feel. It, it, we want people to feel better about it. But maybe it also plays into the perception of things that people perceive crime to be higher, you know, when there's a, a shooting. And it's just, it's so bad. We need to do something. We need to do full, like, martial law. No rights for, you know, anyone arrested. So um, we're hopeful that it's going to be a great success, this Frederick. We're extremely looking forward. We're extremely looking forward to it. I'm shaking my head. Especially the Mount Hope neighborhood is ex- very happy to see this happening. This is a terrible way of talking or writing, whatever. This was written by Shanice Holmes Brown. Is the Hearst Fellow working for the Houston Chronicle. But... Uh, let's see. As a Hearst Fellow, was in a breaking news reporter at the Albany Times Union. Wait, so why is she writing things and she's in Houston? Weird. They, they just don't have any reporters for Albany. They have the one guy that I mentioned before. And everyone else has to be farmed out because they were here previously, I guess, and they're just, like, pulling them back for, like, guest spots or something. That's just, ugh. Print, print media is dying. I wonder why. Uh, yeah. Wonder why. Yeah. People just don't want to have to pay. Well, you look, uh, I looked at, uh, so, okay, having an actual salary, I looked to like, oh, maybe I'll actually get a subscription to the paper. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not paying that much. It's like, it's, it was like $100 a month. So I, I thought it was going to be like, um, like 200 for the year or something. <laughs> but, cause I'm thinking in terms of like the, the, the kinds of, um, uh, the, the subscriptions you pay for magazines, or not, not, not even just talking about the the you know bargain basement money of of streaming services, but of of other magazines and newsletters and things like that. And no, no, you actually are paying two dollars a day and multiplying that. 
it's not a really like I thought it would be like you know fifty cents a day or something like that, but um, so it would be three hundred for the whole year. But no, it was like a hundred a month. So like it, it was. So subscribing isn't a bargain after all. No, not not really. And um, and the online wasn't that much less. So I would get an online subscription. So like so when 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 Rex Smith, you know, and again I haven't listened to his voice in in years now. But he was keep, you know, on the media project, uh, the WAMC, keep saying, oh, print media is dying, print media is dying, people don't want to pay for the subscription. Yeah, and it's like, and it's so expensive running it. Like, this is the price we have to charge. And we have to have, like, we can't have the media for free, you know, even though I'm able to read all of this, maybe because it's my Firefox browser, I don't know. In the last few minutes, um, some positive news. Something I'm not going to, something I won't complain about. Burlington's Amtrak train service is off to a strong start. Now, this isn't directly related to us, but the train service to start here, I suppose, is connecting us to Burlington, Mm -hmm. which it was back in 2012-2013, I had to drive up there. And I think I did look to see if there was train service, even though we were going to St. Albans to the passport office. I think we could have managed some way for the last mile. Actually, it's not the last mile, the last 20 miles. Or 10. But anyway, there was no train service to Burlington from New York. Now there is. So this is filed by Ann Wallace-Allen. Uh, this is Seven Days, Vermont's Independent Voice. I would like something like that. You know, Albany's Independent Voice? Or or the Capital District, I suppose. Which was Metroland. But again, those local uh, news those papers, they're always run by some scumbag who just yeah. fails out. Mm-hmm. So early ridership numbers show that there's strong interest in the six-month-old Ethan Allen Express rail line between Burlington and New York City. You know. Using stats from Trains in the Valley, a rail advocacy org in Western Mass, Vermont, rail booster Carl Fowler reported that the extended Ethan Allen Express route, which began service to Burlington last July, surpassed advocates' expectations by transporting... Uh, 7,800 riders in October, and then 8,000 in November, the last month for which the figures were available. To put it mildly, the news is good. A member of the Vermont Rail Advisory Council, Council that Fowler is, announced on Facebook on January 20th. He posted, He was celebrating not only the interest in the Burlington Rail Service, but also evidence that extending the route, which used to terminate in Rutland, didn't siphon passengers from the existing Amtrak train, the Vermonter, which is going from Boston or something. In fact, the Vermonter saw its highest one-month ridership numbers ever, up to 11,000, 11,700 11, in November. So it boosted the ridership up the other line. Fancy that. Connectivity. The Even Allen Express travels up the western side of the state, stopping in Castleton, Rutland, Mid- Middlebury, and Ferrisburg on the way to Burlington. The Vermonter runs once a day between Washington and St. Albans. So there is a train that goes to some Albans. Traveling up the eastern side of the state through Battleboro, White River Junction, Essex Junction, which are all along the Connecticut mm-hmm. River. Battleboro, a lot of Nazis there. <laughs> uh, historically, we've seen all over the country when Amtrak adds additional services, they don't cannibalize each other. Rather, they grow the market. Fowler, and it's also inducing demand, and yes, inducing demand isn't bad, you just don't want to induce demand when it's something bad like car traffic and traffic jams. Trains, when you induce demand, you're just inducing demand for more 
frequent train service. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can always add more cars and more um, uh, more stops, you know. And they're more environmentally friendly than cars, too. In every way. Yeah. Fowler, who has been advocating for rail in Vermont for decades, it's a long time, used to own a rail travel company himself and estimated he has traveled 300,000 miles by train. Ooh, mm-hmm. all over the globe. He's been working since the 90s to expand service in Vermont. Every airport is the same, but when you take a train, you actually see the country, he said. It's much more relaxing. You get to meet mm-hmm. people. You have time to think and read. Rail advocates such as Fowler still have many other goals for beefing up passenger service to, in Vermont. One of them to restore rail service between St. Albans and Montreal, which ended in 95 during the Amtrak budget cuts. So that was also when things went really bad. Fowler sees Montreal's 4 million residents, just 60 miles north, as an opportunity. Because obviously there are tons of Canadians, Quebecois, that want to vacation in the green and Adirondack Mountains. And then shouldn't have to drive and spend an hour in customs. Hell of Border Patrol. Restoring that service will require track repairs and some administrative work to establish a customs and immigration system at a train station in Montreal said, you know, that way you do it beforehand and you don't actually have to get off the train like I had to at Niagara Falls when I took the train to Toronto. So I'll cut myself off there. There's a few more paragraphs, but you don't need to really. It's just the details about, you know, they're efficient and, of course, less carbon emissions, less pollution of all kinds. So let's uh, wrap up the show. I want to thank you for joining me, Victoria. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me on the show. So that's this week. Please contact me and leave me feedback. Suggest topics or join me on the program, please. It's super relaxing. It's not a big deal. So you use my socials. I have them on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon at what's left in Albany, W-L-I-A, slash three left show. Because I have those pages. I'm carrying them over. And also Instagram at my name, Dan J. Platt, with two A's. Also, go to www.3lefts.news, which contains show notes and the archive of all episodes of both of my programs, as the Three Left Show is my leftist theory show where I discuss the strategies and practice of a left for itself. I want to wish all well and encourage all listening to devote them some time every week to a collective or community project as we all discover what is actually left. Here in Albany. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. As though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming. He got what he asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Get it? (laughs) I go to civil rights rally, and I put down the old D.A.R. D.A.R., that's the dykes of the American Revolution. I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. I hope every colored boy becomes a star. But don't talk about revolution. That's going a little bit too far. So love me, love me, 
love me, I'm a liberal. I cheered when Humphrey was chosen, my faith in the system restored. And I'm glad that the commies were thrown out from the AFL-CIO bar. And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes as long as they don't move next door. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Ah, oh, the people of old Mississippi should all hang their heads in shame. Now I can't understand how their minds work. What's the matter, don't they watch Last Crane? But if you ask me to boss my children, I hope the cops take down your name. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Yes, I read New Republic and Nation. I've learned to take every view. You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden. I feel like I'm almost a Jew. But when it comes to times like Korea, there's no one more red, white, and blue. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I vote for the Democratic Party. They want the UN to be strong. I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts. He sure gets me singing those songs. And I'll send all the money you ask for. But don't ask me to come on along. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Sure, once I was young and impulsive, I wore every conceivable pin. Even went to socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal.